this guy had his gun. The police were chasing him. He was ready to do suicide by cop. And the turnaround he has had since that moment is incredible. I first met Dan Martell in 2013. Uh, we both gave a talk about some of the horrible things that had happened in our lives. He gave his talk, which was much worse situation than I could even imagine. And he told me something in this podcast nine years later that I had no idea, no clue about. And I was astonished. And also he's the author of Buy Back Your Time. It's a great book for any entrepreneur or anybody who just feels like they're so busy, they don't even have time to think or be creative or do what they love. I highly recommend people pre-order his book, Buy Back Your Time. Go to buybackyourtime.com. But first, listen to his story, starting with guns. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Okay, well, first off, Dan and I met at this contest where we had to give a talk, and Tim Ferriss was giving a talk, Ryan Holiday, Dan Martell, Lewis Howes, me. Mark Echo. Mark Echo, Joey Coleman. Yeah. And then people voted, which there was like a contest. People voted which talk gave the most value and the winner would get $30,000. And I, I, everybody kind of assumed, I think that Tim Ferriss was going to win, but Joey Coleman won and he had a very powerful technique for winning. But I remember your talk was, was riveting. And you mentioned some of that story, which is an incredible story in your just out book. I do. Yeah. That, that, uh, What's crazy, James, is that was the first time I'd ever shared that ever in my life was the one you saw. And the really, only that reason, was, that was, was the first riveting. time. Only, like, did you practice it? <laughs> no, zero. I'll tell you the backstory. It was, it was real quick. It was, I was going to do a talk on, uh, I think, integrated life or balances bullshit. And uh, Jason said to us, I didn't know it was a contest. So what happened is the morning he announced, like, the best speaker as voted by the audience will win $25,000 to the charity of their choice. My charity is the rehab center that saved my life as a 17-year-old. And, and something just told me, like, you're just not going to win talking about business and balance. And uh, I went, I decided I was going to share my story. I went back to the hotel room in the morning, outlined something, scratched it. And then when I came back, check this out, my wife, she's got a big smile and she goes, uh, hey, my parents wanted to surprise you. They're actually going to be here for your talk. Oh my God. And I was like, uh, my wife had never heard that story. They obviously hadn't. And uh, wait a second. Your wife had never heard that story? Dude, I didn't tell anybody. Well, don't you think was, okay, we're going to get to this story in a second. But just from a couple's counseling point of view, did you think your wife was going to be upset that you never confided in her this like dark past you had? And you almost pulled a gun on cops. Yeah. Um, not really. I don't know. I guess I didn't because it was such a long time ago. And like, there was no part of that that like, there was, yeah, I never thought like, you know, like if something traumatic happened to her and she never told me we were engaged at the time, like she, she was pregnant, but we weren't married technically. But yeah, no, I wasn't concerned about that. I mean, I was, I was scared, James, like 
ashamed. I was worried that if I shared that story, that my investors at the time I was working on Clarity and just raised a bunch of money. And I was just worried that literally people would be like, oh, Dan's an evil person or he's, he should have told us. Like, I was more concerned about my investors feeling that way than my wife. Yeah, because from an investor's point of view, a typical due diligence question is, hey, we did all the due diligence, looks great. Last thing, is there anything we should know? And you clearly didn't tell them. No. Because maybe you thought, no. but correctly, maybe you thought, okay, they don't really need to know this. I'm a different person now. And, and I was 17 at the time. I didn't, I wasn't an adult. I didn't have a criminal record. I've been sober since. Like, you know, I felt like I had kind of repented. And it was funny because I had this belief that I'll share it once I'm successful enough. And literally my filter was on Oprah or equivalent. It was ridiculous. You know, growing up in Eastern Canada, it was just a stupid kind of like ceiling. Maybe that's why I said it so that I could go through life and never share it. Um, and yeah, I, I owe it to Jason for, you know, setting a scenario and a context that kind of forced me to share it. And when I came off stage, I remember Tim actually pulled me aside. I'd known Tim a couple, probably three years, just because of San Francisco, I was living down the valley. And uh, he said, man, I've known you and I never knew that part of you. As if I shared it all the time. Like, see, he thought he just never heard me share it and that I shared all the time. And then I had like seven friends come up to me that knew me really well, like my like Clay Bear and many others. And same thing. They were like, dude, I didn't know. Why didn't you ever tell me? And I was like, dude, that's the first time I've ever told anybody. And my, well, well, Dan, my we're, in-laws. We're, we're, we're certainly teasing this story quite a bit. So just tell, <laughs> tell the story right now. Like it's, it's, it's a riveting story. I'm going to just let you go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a pretty challenging environment. Second oldest of four in my family. My mom was an alcoholic. She grew up adopted and parents, her parents were both alcoholics and they just struggled with a lot of like, you know, they did the best they could with what they knew, but you know, it was, there was a lot of like trauma and I had, I developed anger issues when I was very young, got diagnosed with ADHD, put on Ritalin when I was 11. My dad was in sales. So he was literally gone five, six days a week. And uh, my mom raised us, but you know, like she, she had some real demons that she dealt with and it came out in and some pretty unfortunate ways. Was she an alcoholic while she was raising you? I mean, was she an alcoholic? Like, when yeah. was she an alcoholic? Our, our whole lives. I only found out my parents got divorced when we were 13. And I found out later, like when I was 16, 17, the reason my dad left her is because she wouldn't quit. And he, mm. like, you know, my, you know, I love my mom. We have a beautiful relationship today, but she all, you know, she sometimes through her, you know, drinking and her mood, she got to a place where, you know, because we were crazy boys, you know, she had three boys and she raised us like she would throw us in the shower and, you know, to try, like, just water us down to try to calm us down if we were fighting and stuff. Just stuff that to her felt normal because probably what she grew up in, but obviously had a really impact, impact on me. And uh, when I was 14, or no, when I was 12, I got taken out of my house, put into foster foster care because I just, I had a rage inside of me that was just, I don't know, James, if you've ever gotten so upset where you just see red and it's just this like, this internal scream. But I used to get like that as a 10, 11, 12 year old. And, and what parents, would happen that led to the foster care? Because usually that's on the parent's side. They want, you know, the authorities want you to go into foster care. It was, it was my parents called the police because they were worried that I was going to burn the house down while they were sleeping. And when you were 14? I was 12. Wow. Like what, why did they think that? Like, what did you say? Cause I would just, I would just, 
I would say that. I would get to the point. Now, later on in life, I, I learned that I did that as a cry for attention because when my dad was traveling in sales, and if I acted that way, my mom would have to call him and he would come home. But this came out in therapy years later. But that's what would happen. I would just, I would just get so upset. I just couldn't contain myself. I don't know if you're, maybe other people can't really, I don't know. I just, I would get so upset. It was like I would hyperventilate and just see red and just like absolutely destroy my room. Like, and this is related to your mom's, you know, being an alcoholic. Was she bipolar or was she self-medicating in some way? Were you self-medicating in some way? Not at the time, no. No, no self-medication at that age. Uh, my mom definitely probably was with the alcohol. Um, well, 100% was. And um, yeah, she'd sometimes she'd physically, you know, punish us in ways that is probably just definitely what you wouldn't get away with today, you know? And so you were in foster care. Like what was, I, I, I didn't know this part. What was that like? Like what was... You know, I lasted six months. I went, I went, I I ended up in a crisis center for a couple of weeks. So they find like a foster parent, um, which is a pretty traumatizing event. You know, at 12 years old, being taken out of your home and waking up in a, in a, it was essentially like a house, but you know, there's four rooms and there's staff 24 seven because, you know, I threatened to kill myself in suicidal thoughts. And um, yeah, the, um, the challenge was that uh, I got put into foster care and, and my foster um, dad, I was his first kid. So like I walked all over. Like it got to a place where, you know, first day we go up to grocery store and he's like, you know, what do you want to eat? And I was like, oh, well, I eat chocolate Pop-Tarts and hot dogs. He's like, that's it? I go, yeah, call my mom. That's all I eat. So he spent $200 on chocolate Pop-Tarts and hot dogs. Like, I mean, it was kind of... Oh my God. A bad situation because like I just took advantage of everything. I mean, I get to the the you know he, I, he bought me a pellet gun, you know, and that we would go to the range and practice together as like a bonding thing. But then I found out where he used to hide it, and then I blew out all the street lights. And he was like, "Hey, do you know why all the street lights are busted on our street?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I think it's this kid up the street, John." Like he's like, "That's so weird," you know. Like he was just kind of clueless, you know. Like these 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 kind of like adults that. <clears throat> you know, don't, uh, have never done anything bad. They just see the good in everybody. And it got to a point where I ended up, um, we were gone on vacation. We went on a camping trip and I convinced him to buy fireworks for the camping trip. But that night- Wait, has, when, hasn't he learned from his experience yet at this no, point? No, and like I met him years later to apologize because he was just the sweetest person. He didn't ever have another foster kid after me. I, so here's what happened. We went on the camping trip. I told him I don't want to use the fireworks. He's like, well, why did you make me buy a bunch of Roman candles? I, I did it because I wanted them personally. So when he, was, um, when he was gone one Saturday, I actually went in his room and found where he'd hid them. And I started cutting up these Roman candles in his living room. And uh, I had newspapers out and a you know, wax candle to reseal. I, was, I figured I'd cut off the 25%. He wouldn't know how long they were. And as I'm putting this thing together and there's a pile of like Roman candle dust and like, you know, a steak knife from the kitchen, cutting this open in the candle and the, the whole pile catches fire and it goes off in his house. Like we're talking 4th of July level smoke. And this is like hardwood floor, like super like bookshelves and beautiful furniture. And I run into the kitchen to try to grab like the little white fire extinguisher underneath the sink that he showed me on day one. And like, it does nothing to like try to stop the, Friggin', you know, blue, green, red, like little friggin' firebombs flying all over the place, putting holes in his furniture. And 
soon as like kind of things settled down, I, uh, I went and packed up my bags and ran away. And I think I went on the run for about three days. I was 12 at that point. And um, when I came back, the cops found me at my friend's house because, you know, it was like Friday or Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday, you know, I told him that Dave said I could sleep over and then they called him and he now knew where I was, called the police because of my foster or the uh, social worker. And they picked me up. And when they brought me back to Dave's place, um, I could hear them talking about me and, he said, you know, he was emotional. He's just like, I can't, I can't deal with this. And oh, he just man. broke down and said, uh, you guys got to take him. So I ended up doing um, a year in a group home with people that were three, four years older than me, criminal records, and teaching me stuff I probably should have never been learning at that age. You know, drugs, things with about girls. And yeah, life just spiraled out of control. My parents got divorced shortly after that and got turned on to... Uh, to different types of drugs, PCP, marijuana. Do you ever feel responsibility for your parents getting divorced? I did at the time. I did at the time. It was, it was probably when I was 17, towards the end of my, I did 11 months in rehab that, um, that me and my dad had a really good conversation. That's when he told me about my mom's drinking and how bad it got and what he saw her doing to us and asked of her to stop or he was going to leave. So... But for a long time, that shame and guilt was inside. I mean, I just felt like 100% it was my fault. I think any kid would, even if you didn't experience what I experienced. So you begin the book, Buy Back Your Time, with this story, I guess you're around 17 in this story. What, what happened? What led to that story? You want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, what happened was I, um, I ended up in prison when I was 15, got in trouble with the law, drug shoplifting, and I got out and I said I would you know, clean up my act, new group friends, and I lasted a day. Ended up back with the same people. And it was a year later about... Um, I uh, ended up just getting such a dark place. I was I was on the run from the police because I had I'd gotten trouble uh, for growing weed in my house and I had guns under my bed and my mom called the police and uh, I stole a car and I had a handgun in a backpack and I decided to head to Montreal. My uncle lived there. So I lived in the East Coast of Canada and it was about a 12-hour drive and you know, I, I was high on pills and drinking while I was driving. And I mean, I was 16. I didn't even have a driver's license. And uh, I took a, you know, an exit on the, off the highway to get some gas, and uh, there was a routine roadblock. And the cops asked me, you know, for my driver's license. I told them I forgot at home, and they said, "Well, you know, registration for the car." I said, "Well, it's my mom's car." And when they asked me to pull over, I just stepped on it, just gunned it, took off, got, you know, I think I watched too many action movies growing up because I was like, you know, thinking I could find some area to hide out and run into the woods and, and make my escape. But I told myself before I stole the car that if the police uh, stopped me, I was just going to pull the gun and let them take my life. And what happened was I saw an open garage door in this neighborhood and I came into the driveway carrying way too much speed and just smashed into the side of the kind of the corner of the garage in the house. Let, you know, airbags go off and, you know, it was just like this big noise and I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So I like hit my head and then I went for the gun and, uh, as I was pulling on kind of the handle, it got stuck between the uh, handrest and the, the bag. 
And I just kept pulling on it and pulling on it because I wanted to uh, take my life. I just didn't want to go back to jail, and I didn't have any self-worth. I didn't think I was worth a living. And uh, before I knew it, the police opened the door and grabbed me. Like, again, I'm not buckled in. They literally just pulled me out of the car. Didn't even, like, I'd say dragged me across the front lawn, floated across the front lawn, and threw me in the back of the cop car. And uh, I woke up sober the next morning wondering what my life was going to look like. And I just remembered having this, like, feeling that, A, I'm alive, and, and the fact that I was alive, maybe somebody was looking out for me. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in a higher power, but something made me kind of think about that. And that was the beginning of an incredibly long road of recovery and um, rebuilding, you know, the, the trust I'd lost with my brothers and my, and, you know, young, like junior high friends and just so many people I'd burned along the way. So I ended up in prison for five months. And when I got released, I got released to a rehab center uh, called Portage. And, and what, were your parents involved in your life at all? Like, were they at... They hire lawyers. Were they negotiating for your sentence? It's so crazy. My dad. Sorry, man. Um, when I went the first time, they came to visit, and it was so hard on my dad that he said, "If you ever come back here again, I'm not. I I'm not coming to visit. I just need you to know that." And uh, and he just got super emotional. I'd never seen my dad cry. My my grandparents died when I was like eight. First time I see my dad cry, I'd never get it. And he was just super emotional. So like when I went the second time, I kind of knew like I'm here on my own. So didn't come to court, didn't get me help. He he did what I wish every parent would do is, is just let your child hit rock bottom. You know, and it's so tough. Like that's why I get emotional because I have two boys now. And I'm like, I can't even imagine. But um, the day I got out, he actually picked me up. Because he's the one that drove me from the prison. I went to court. They released me to the rehab center. And that was the first time I saw my dad in five months. And uh, he drove me to this place and dropped me off. And he said, you got to finish. If you don't finish, I'm done. And I did 11 months in this place. And, and where was your mom? My mom was struggling, just trying to survive. Yeah, she was, she was in the hometown, but I, I didn't see her. She didn't come. I probably didn't see her for another two months until I got my first visit. The way it works is you got to kind of earn your, your passes. It was two months they came to visit. That's what it was. It was like two months, do good. The parents can come visit for like six hours on site. And then you kind of, over months, you, you get like a day pass and a weekend pass. And, but I would still go with my dad because my dad was the kind of like the stable person in the parental relationship. My mom was still dealing with her demons. And, um, but this place literally saved my life. I did all the figured out what made me tick and, and like the, the feeling management groups and the stories that I was telling myself about my self-worth and my confidence. And, um, and it was at the end of that program, I was helping Rick, the maintenance guy, clean out one of the uh, cabins because it was built on an old church camp. And uh, in one of the rooms in this cabin, there was this old 486 computer. This is 1997. Uh, just sitting there with a yellow book on Java programming sitting next to it. And I opened the book and I'm like expecting, you know, hieroglyphics and ones and zeros. And it's, it's English, it's Java, you know, JavaScript, if people are more familiar with that today. And I just sat there and I don't know, I just felt like, oh, I'll start this computer up and follow chapter one. And after 20 minutes, I got the computer to print out Hello World. And it was just like, 
something in me just thought, oh, maybe I'm like so messed up in other parts of my life because I have this gift of like computers or math. I don't know. Like it's kind of, it sounds silly saying it, James, because I'm, I'm not actually that great of a programmer. If you meet these 10X programmers, that wasn't me. But that story of like, maybe that's my thing. And it, and it literally replaced my addiction. And it, and it became the thing I became obsessed about. I mean, dude, I was coding. I got out and told, shared it with my dad and he, he really supported it. You know, I had two passions, botany and plants <laughs> and computers. And he's what? like, yeah. Why were you I used to grow weed. Yeah, I used to grow weed. Oh, I, yeah, okay. I literally, yeah. yeah, my dad goes, you know, you can always have a garden as a passion, but this computer thing you should focus on. And, um, you know, I, I got out and shortly after I discovered this little thing called the internet. And it couldn't have been a better timing. And that's, that's been my journey since then. As you know, like I've, you know, I've built a bunch of different companies and just built software. I just like code till two or three in the morning. I became like almost like a hermit and that I'd meet some friends online and we'd share ideas and build projects together. And, you know, I built my first company when I was 17, 18, uh, that failed, but I just started young and it took a while, man. Well, it took a long time. What took a long time? Like succeeding to or figure out business? Yeah, I literally was business an is hard. Idiot, man. I was like, you know, it's funny because in hindsight, I I was I probably my dad had this rule. He said, if you read the whole book, so we'd buy like you know HTML in twenty one days or like database design or you know I ended up getting my Microsoft certified solution developer certification, which is like these four huge books that I had to pay 200 bucks to do the test. And if I didn't pass, you only get so many attempts or you don't get it. And I just, I don't know why. Again, I became obsessed with it. And uh, he probably spent three, $4,000 on books and probably a hundred different books. I, the whole computer section at our local, what we call chapters in Canada, like I just worked through it. CGI, Perl, ASP, like you name it. Yeah, Cold Fusion. A lot of people don't even remember that programming language. It was beautiful. And... Um, Pro, but Pro I didn't was read a language of choice in that year. Yeah. It was like it was 90, 95 through 98. I was like the Pearl years. Yeah. Pearl is, Pearl is like the, the go-to back then. And um, yeah, I did. Uh, I just read what was computer book? books. I, I mean, I would say, and this segues to your book. If I could go back to the 90s and tell myself one thing about business, it would be the stuff you talk about in your book about buying back your time. But we'll, we'll get to that in, in a second. What was literally, you know, holding you back from success? Like you're, you're writing software, nothing yet had been written for the internet. So almost anything you could do was going to make money. Like what was holding back your success? You think, you know, I think I fell in love with programming because I didn't have to talk to anybody. That was the belief I had, you know, you write code, you build something, people go online, whatever. And I didn't understand marketing. I didn't understand teams. I didn't understand buy, buying back your time, any of that. And it wasn't until I was 23 that I finally bought a business book. Like, that's what's crazy, James. I, I, bought, I read 100 computer books starting at 17 and it took me six years to finally, the first book I ever bought was called Love is a Killer App by a guy named Tim Sanders. Because I was, I was ADHD. I always told myself I couldn't read storybooks. I'd read like a paragraph and my brain would just go off into the ether, right? Computer books, for whatever reason, because I had like a purpose, I read books for things I wanted to build. So it was a lot easier for me because it's like, oh, I want to connect to a database. Okay, well, I need to buy a book on database design and one on some kind of like web, web language. 
And um, yeah, so I just didn't have the fundamentals of understanding marketing, teams, culture. And uh, I didn't even buy a book. I bought an audio CD. That's how little I thought I could even read a book. I bought the CDs on, on break at lunch. I was consulting at the time. And um, I just became obsessed with reading business books. Like it was this clear message. The guy, Tim Sanders, says, you know, super accomplished chief creative officer at Yahoo at the time. So I was obviously, I admired his background and his passion. And here's a guy that obviously wrote a book. So like, I got to listen to him. And he said, uh, you don't even read books for yourself, even though that's important. He said, you should read books for your customers. And that was like, what? Oh, like, that, I'm gonna... that's a really good point. Yeah. And, I, and he goes, if you do that, then you can teach your customers what they should know, but they probably don't have time to learn. And you become the center of, of uh, knowing. And I was like, I, that makes sense. So I went on this binge. I started with the classics. I started reading Like, What do you remember? Me. Like, le- Like, I would think... Like that was 25 years ago, roughly. So what do you think you were, anything that you remember now, obviously really stood out for you then. What, what's something you remember now that you learned then? Oh, um, the experience economy. Just like I, I read that book and it was, it was they, they just talk about like the customer experience and the journey. So like to me, that influences the way I create activation flows. I mean, these are nerdy software things, but like, you know, first time user experiences, um, you know, time to first value. Like these are, is today, that's, that's what I do. I write software. So it's like understanding how the world works from an experience economy point of view, like with examples in restaurant and hotels, et cetera. And then bringing that to software, I felt like I had these like secrets that nobody knew about. I mean, I read everything from uh, Never Eat Alone, Keith Ferrazzi. I mean, we met at an event. Why? Because I said yes and trust in a guy I never met, Jason Gaynard. It, because I was like investing in relationships. If I go there, I'm going to see some old friends. I'm going to maybe make some new ones. So like, you know, Never Eat Alone had a huge impact on my life that's continued to carry forward. Um, so many. I mean, marketing, just general, like how do you position? Like, what does that mean? How do you, I mean, so many people in software, as you know, James, like they can have the most brilliant idea, but because they can't explain what problem they solve and who they solve it for, they, it just sits It sits on a virtual shelf. Nobody, nobody signs up because it's just, all those problems I had. Let's look at a, a real world experience. Like, tell me about Flowtown. That was like your first business. That was that, you that sold. was a second company I saw. I sold a company called Spheric Technologies when I was twenty eight. That that made me my first million. I actually became a millionaire when I was 27 just through that company because we did Enterprise Portal stuff. Sold that when I was 28 and then moved to San Francisco. Oh, enterprise Portal stuff, you mean like you would build like intranets for companies? or 100%. Yeah, back in the day of like IBM WebSphere. We were helping people migrate off WebSphere. Um, Microsoft SharePoint might have just came out then. But that was my world. Connecting the Fortune 500 to Fortune 5000 companies to their intranets and like their business software. So like SAP, I mean, all this stuff I would never do today, but... You know, I cut my teeth. Was it, like, a, was it a service company or like an agency? Both. Like, was we, it a product company or an agency? Yeah, we started as a service business and then we started building these connectors, these things called portlets. And then we ended uh-huh. up kind of migrating to software and that's why we got acquired. Oh, that's great. Who, who acquired you? A company called Function One. They were, they were another service company in the US. I mean, it was single digit millions, not a, not a big exit, but I owned 100% of the company. And that's you great. Know, for most people, that was like, like I honestly was like, 
I'm going to retire. I did it for four years, you know, and that was my first success. Was this a hard time for you after you sold the company? Like, did you add this money and like, did old temptations come back? I didn't have temptations. I'll tell you what I did go through. I had an identity problem because my whole personal value was tied up in the business. And I remember I negotiated a uh, six-month advisory earnout, so like nothing too heavy. And the, mo- the day I woke up and realized that nobody cared if I woke up, like it just like, you know, I had to go see a therapist because I was having anxiety attacks. I literally would walk like, and I'm like a mental mindset positivity guy. And here I was having anxiety attacks in my, my body, physical, like chest, like pain, like felt like pressure in my chest. And uh, the therapist, this guy, Manuel, he, he explained to me, he goes, this, you know, like it's not much different. Obviously not the same. I don't want to diminish, but it's like losing a child, right? Like you had this, you birthed this business. It was who you are. Dan Martell Spheric, you know, we won awards. I, we built this incredible team, like all these things. And then all of a sudden it's gone, right? Like nobody cared if I came to work or not. They, the, the company that bought us took over operations and, you know, they were, you know, they, they, they call me if I needed help, but they were very seasoned. And, um, and that was tough. That was a tough lesson, but no, I never went back. I did start drinking again, um, which I probably shouldn't have. I never, never went back to the drug stuff. And, uh, you know, today I'm 10 years sober. Like I quit drinking when my wife told me she was pregnant. So, wow. Well, okay. So Flowtown, what was that about? Yeah. So Flowtown was a product for essentially helping people do social media marketing. Um, You know, the funny story about that is I didn't even want to start it. My co-founder, Ethan, uh, I gave him the technology I'd built with the CTO I had on staff. Essentially, I went to San Francisco on sabbatical and just wanted to learn. But I had a full-time CTO, Scott, that would just write products for like create apps for me, essentially write the code. He was a 10X programmer. And um, I built this tool that would give you all the social media data and demographic data on an email address. So like back then, there was a a company called Rapleaf and other data providers. So we just like, put it all together. So you give me a Twitter account or an email address and I would tell you everything else about the person. And that, that was a crazy ride because we ended up, you know, I moved to San Francisco with this vision within a decade. I'd like to build a venture-backed tech software company and maybe exit it, you know, like coming from Canada at the time. Even though I exited my company, like I still felt like I had a lot more in me and um, that you know, Ethan took the technology and then he was like, we got to ramen profitable. And then he was like, I'm going to raise some money. This is early days of Angelus. So we actually reached out to Naval and uh, Nivi, you know, his co-founder, a lot of people don't know about Nivi, but Nivi was yeah. like, we live next to each other in the mission district in San Francisco. And like, I remember our first round, we were having a hard time raising and uh, we called him up and he's like, well, come, come over to the apartment. You know, he's right by Dolores Park. He's like, come over and we'll jam on your pitch deck. And we showed him and he's like, so what's the valuation? And this is like 2009, you know, early days, not the current valuation, but we said seven. He's like, he's like, what are you raising? I said 700K on 7 million pre. And like, we're 17,000 a month in reoccurring revenue, like nothing. And he's like, how are investors reacting? We're like, uh, yeah, they're not jumping. They kind of say that's cool and they're congratulations, but they, you know, nobody's written a check. We had done like a dozen calls and he goes uh yeah it's a little little rich and he goes why seven on 700 on seven million i said because san francisco this is how ridiculous we're san francisco is called the seven by seven city 
And we had heard that Mint had raised, I didn't know I think that. 600K, Mint.com, yeah. Mint, yeah, because there's seven miles by seven miles. It's essentially a square. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mint had raised 600K at 6 million pre uh, from first round. And we were trying to raise from first round. So, dude, we were so ridiculous. I was 28 at the time, 29, 29. And uh, Ethan was a lot younger. He was 25. And we were just like these uninformed optimists kids running around the valley with our startup idea. But dude, we got it done. We ended up doing the deal, I think, at 5.5, but we raised close to a million. Um, That's great. And, I mean, uh, look, the fact that you were making revenues showed that people people were raising their hand and willing to spend money on you. Yeah, we were hustlers. I mean, that was the thing that every investor met with us. It's like, you know, I was actually the technical behind the scenes guy. Ethan was the CEO, kind of buying back your time. And and to that point, like one thing that people should understand is like software spoke to a part of me that like the reoccurring model of it. And I think that like the systems thinking I developed architecting software and like growing up in so much chaos, there was something actually like beautiful about code for me, the procedural aspect of it that I knew if I like wrote the code in a certain sequence for the rest of my life, as long as the computer ran, this thing would do its thing. So it was almost like the opposite of the chaos. And then the reoccurring aspect just created this predictability that I just, to this day, like I still only get involved in businesses with a reoccurring business model because I just love the ability to build and be rewarded for a value that somebody can decide to invest in or or leave on a monthly basis. So next week, I'm going to talk more with Dan about entrepreneurship, and I'm going to talk more about Buy Back Your Time, which you can pre-order at buybackyourtime.com. But also, I finally get a chance to talk to his wife, Renee, about what her reaction was when she first heard the story you just heard, and I had heard it the same time she heard it in 2013. 